Let's pray and then we'll get started for today. God, we thank you that you are a good God, you are sovereign, you are faithful, you are wise, you are good in all that you do, and we can trust you. Uh, Lord, we might not always understand everything um, that you are doing. We might not always understand perfectly everything in your word. But God, we know that you are consistent. God, we know that you do not contradict yourself, that you are you are true. Uh, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's why we can rest in you. Uh, Lord, there's no surprises in terms of your character. Uh, Lord, you have revealed yourself clearly in Scripture. And uh, Lord, may our hearts just be led to rest in you. God, uh, thank you that we can be here for these few moments today to keep talking through our statement of faith. Um, God, if there's any real questions, I pray that you would just generate those in our hearts, uh, Lord, as we talk through this, uh, Lord, so that everybody can be on the same page and truly know um, who we are as a church and, uh, Lord, what we're about and what we emphasize. And God, we pray that even as we, Lord, cover a lot of ground very quickly, that our hearts would be edified, our our souls would be encouraged, that our love for you would be um, fanned into hotter flame, um, and that our obedience to you uh, would only be stronger, God, because of our time together uh, for these few moments. So God, we commit our hearts, our minds to you. Uh, be with us in a special way. We pray for the, other, the, the main Sunday school class, God, that you will be with Mark and Fred as they um, continue to teach on biblical manhood and womanhood. Uh, Lord, just help them stay faithful to your word, and may your spirit be at work th through your word, both there and over and here in this room. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so going back to last week, we looked at our statement of basic beliefs. It was kind of like drinking from a fire hose. Um, it's a lot of stuff in a very short amount of time. Um, but that's just the nature of this. Because again, what do we want to do? We want to expose you to who we are as a church. Most of you probably already know that to, you know, to some degree. Um, but, you know, when joining with a church, it's good to know what you're joining yourself to, um, what they emphasize, what they, uh, what a church is about, what's important, um, things we're going to major on and things we're going to minor on. Um, and so that's really the purpose of these few weeks is to make sure you understand who we are and what we're going to be about. So there's no surprises down the road. Um, it's just better for you, better for us, better for everyone um, and again, you know, if you have a question during this, please raise your hand, say, hey, can you go back over that? Or what about this? Or it's, you know, this is a tough, tough aspect of that. Um, if you have a question that comes up afterwards, um, I send it to the church email saying, hey, I was in the new members class. I would like to follow up on this and we will get back in touch with you and talk with that. Um, if you're like me, a lot of times questions come after the fact. I, I'll hear something and about six hours later when I'm thinking about it, I'm like, oh, no, wait a minute. That's what I wanted to ask. So if you're like me, that 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 could be you too. So um, don't feel bad. It's not going to be a bother in any way if you have something you want to talk about and you think about it after the fact. Um, so again, last week, we're not going to go over it other than to say basic beliefs, things you have to believe. This is basic Christianity is what we'd say. Um, it's on our church's website. If you go to the um, About Us and you scroll down um, past, like, you know, the elder introductions and you've got the statement of faith, you can find this. Um, again, basic Christianity 
you have to believe this to be, we would say to be a believer, also to be a member of this church. Um, and you don't have to, you, 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 you don't necessarily have to believe more than this, but you can't believe less than this. Okay, uh, is what I'm trying to say. So Can we give those to Georgia. Do you guys need Georgia paper? You need. I don't have any more with me. Oh, those guys are. No, this is this was I was printing out for the for today. For today, oh, and okay. like I said, I, I did not like I couldn't get enough of them. Um, the printer jammed, and then I didn't. I ran out of time. Oh, good. Okay. Oh, all right. Well, good. So what I want to do today, and like like I said, this is um, on the website. Um, sorry that we don't have this printed out. I was hoping to have that done. Um, this is our first time going through, so we're getting in a rhythm here. Uh, you guys, in a sense, get to be the guinea pigs, and next time it'll be better for whoever else comes. Uh, we'll make sure we've got things um, lined up the way we, we need to. So, what we're going to do today is talk about our statement of theological distinctives. Okay, the statement of theological distinctives. If you have the thing from last week, we started into this, and like I said, my own printer ran out of ink. Um, and then I learned that we have one here, and then, like I said, that one messed up. Um, but I'm just going to read through this, talk through it. Uh, we're, we've got plenty of scripture we can look at. Um, and so this, this is going beyond where we went last week. Um, there's good people who um, would emphasize things a little differently than we're going to emphasize them here. Okay? But as we study scripture, we are convinced that these trajectories, these emphases, I should say, um, are, are faithful to Scripture and what helps a church be as healthy and focused as it needs to be. Um, and, you know, to be honest, there's, we, we may add more to this over the summer. We're talking about getting together and, like, really working through the statement of faith because it's been, what, five, six years now? Um, seeing if there's things, you know, having been a church now for five years, are, are there things we would want to revisit and, um, you know, rework and strengthen maybe add some things, and so I might mention, a, there's at least one thing I'm going to mention that's not on here that we're probably going to add um, this summer to our distinctives. Um, and so again, just reading this says, while the doctrines expressed in the statement of basic beliefs are recognized to be universal and primary within the church, there are a number of other important beliefs that we are passionate to proclaim. It should be known that we will preach, teach, and counsel in accordance with these convictions. Um, there's five that are in there right now. Uh, like I said, we're likely going to add at least one, maybe another one or two beyond that. But the, the five at least that we have right now, the first one is the centrality of the gospel in uh, the believer's daily life. The second one is our specific statement on divine sovereignty and human responsibility. The third deals with the complementary roles of men and women, which is what's being taught in the, the main Sunday school class. So if you haven't listened to that, I would encourage you to go back for the last several weeks um, and, and listen to that because it's really unpacking in much greater detail what we're just barely summarizing in, um, in this thing. Um, this fourth is believer's baptism by immersion. We are a Baptist church. It's not in the name. We don't feel like you have to advertise that. Um, we're not, I mean, we are Baptist by conviction, make no apologies for that. Um, but it's just North Avenue Church is North Avenue Church. Um, and lastly, the relationship of God's glory to man's joy. And so we're just going to work through each one of those. And um, again, if you have a question, some of these you might, you know, be fully on board with others. There's nuances, there's places where it's difficult, it's hard to wade through. Um, and so if you want to discuss that, please please say so. All right, gospel-centered living. 
This is what the statement says. We believe that the gospel is an essential message that both unbelievers and believers must hear and believe. Now, let's look at Romans chapter 1. You got your Bibles. Romans chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. And while you're turning there, I'm going to read the next statement while you're getting there. It says, We affirm that the gospel should be continually emphasized in the believer's life and that a genuine knowledge of the gospel through faith and repentance is the central means of growth for the Christian. That might be a little bit different emphasis um, than you're used to. Um, and the reason I say that is my wife... Um, she grew up in a Christian home, um, very, very strong, conservative, independent church. Um, but the emphasis that we're about to get was something that when, when we first met, I was still working through it, but I was becoming more and more convinced of it. Um, and I mean, she'd say this, like it was weird for her when I was like, you know, we got to be gospel centered. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves. And that was just, it was a new thing. And, and she'd be the first to say the more she studied scripture, the more she started seeing this is exactly what scripture leads us to. It's not just a novel invention that's creative and sounds good. Um, it's actually rooted in the text. And Romans, surprisingly, um, it's, it's, I shouldn't say surprisingly, but clearly shows why we say gospel-centered, okay? Because, again, the, the, the reason this matters is so often we think gospel is for unbelievers, and once you become a Christian, you move on from the gospel to something else. Um, and that's just not the case, and here's why. Let's look at verses 15 through 17 and then another place here in Romans 1. Um, all right, so, all right, in verse 15 is, is, is huge. It says, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, just stop there for a second. Paul's writing to believers. He's not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to believers. And he's saying to believers, I want to preach the gospel to you. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. And so we have to hear that and start to consider the gospel has to be something more than just for the lost. It definitely has a, a role in reaching the lost. It's the good news message of salvation that you can't be saved without embracing, repenting, and believing. But it has a very important function in the life of the believer as well. And that's why Paul says to this church, this church of believers, I want to preach the gospel to you also. And I think the, emphasis, the, the, the application of that for us is we need the gospel just as much as believers as unbelievers do. Maybe in a different way, in a, in a slightly different emphasis, but we still need the gospel just as much as non-Christians. So let's read on in Romans 1. It's what he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Okay, so we don't want to be ashamed of the gospel. Paul's clear about that. He's not ashamed of this gospel message. And the reason why, he says, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So again, reaffirming you cannot be saved apart from believing the gospel. And the interesting part is, is in fact, you need to hear the gospel in order to be enabled to believe. Because the gospel, the Spirit works through the gospel 
bringing faith, bringing repentance to those who hear. Um, so no gospel, no salvation. You guys have probably heard this statement before attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. I don't think I mentioned this last week, did I? I talked about this somewhere this past week. It might have been with one of my classes. Um, but that you know, it says, preach the gospel always, use words if necessary. Um, number one, that's unbiblical. Number two, St. Francis of Assisi never said that. St. Francis of Assisi was a gospel preacher, so he would not have endorsed that use of his words. Would he have said your life needs to back up what you preach? Yes. Um, but he would never say that you can preach the gospel without actually using words. We are to, to understand this gospel is a message that is communicated in words, and it's the only way we can be saved is by repenting and believing in it. But then again, look at verse 17. It might be a little confusing, but he ends with this, quoting from, um, is it, it's not Habakkuk, it's, um, yeah, it is Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4. It says, the righteous shall live by faith. Not just start out by faith, but live by faith. Faith in what? The gospel. Faith in God's promise in the gospel. Um, and so the whole, one of the whole main emphasis of the book of Romans is helping this church understand that as Christians, they are still to find their righteousness only in Jesus. It's not like you move on from what God gave you in Jesus to something else later. No, everything you need at the beginning of the Christian life, everything you need throughout the entirety of your Christian life is given you in Christ. So that's why we, when we say gospel-centered, that's also Christ-centered, um, focusing on the person and work of Christ, on all that God has given us through Jesus because that's what we live by. We're saved by it and we live by it. Uh, we never get away from it. So, um, moving on here, he says, we affirm, and this is an important statement, that we affirm that the gospel, rather than the law, is the primary means of sanctification, transformation, and holiness in a believer's life. By this, we do not deny the law's essential place in Scripture. It is meant to show us our need of Christ by showing us how we have fallen short of God's standards. Now, we're not going to spend that much time on every passage. Romans 7, we don't have time to read that, and that's a thorny passage in and of itself. Uh, but the point is, the law functions to show us that we're sinners. It's like the law is a, a mirror of God's of, of the righteousness that we owe God. The law says you should do this, you should not do this. This is what we owe God as His creatures. And the law says this is the standard. And when we hold ourselves up against that standard, we all fall short. You know, Romans 3.23, we've all fallen short uh, of the glory of God. And so the law shows us our need of Christ. Because we look at the law, and if we're understanding it rightly, we should despair of ever being able to keep it perfectly. We should not, I can't do that. I, if I had 10,000 lifetimes, I couldn't meet every demand perfectly as God requires. And so the law shows us our need of Christ. Um, and that's what I think our statement of faith gets says so well here. It goes on to say, We also believe in the third use of the law, whereby God's moral law is meant to guide the believer's life. So it's not like law is unimportant. Um, there's a, a, there's a, a false teaching called antinomianism, which simply means anti-law says, like, if you're a Christian, you don't have to worry about obeying God. You don't have to worry about keeping His law. That is not the case. So when we say we're not, um, that we're gospel-centered, not law-centered, it doesn't mean we're against law. It doesn't mean we're, we're anti-law. It simply means we know we're not saved by keeping the law. 
But those who are saved, we see God's law. And as it says here, it's a guide to our life. The law shows us how God wants us to live. Not just the Old Testament law, but also everything that Jesus says. Um, But we do deny that the law is the means of transformation. That comes by the Spirit working through the Word, through the Gospel. So it says, after the law has done its work to make us despair of saving ourselves, it wonderfully prepares our hearts for the Gospel and the saving and sanctifying effect it has on our lives. Um, I would encourage you to um, go online, look at the Scripture references. It's Romans 7, Romans 8, Galatians 3, uh, several passages there. And consider how those passages lead us to say what we're saying in our statement of faith. And think through that. And that's why I say, if you have any questions come up, please let us know. So at this point, is there any questions or comments on what we just said? After drinking from a fire hose, you have to pretty much catch your breath, so understand that. Um, All right, if none, let's move on then, because we only got a limited amount of time to try to cover all this. The next one, divine sovereignty. Um, let's, Let's just start reading, and then we'll look at a few scriptures. It says, God is sovereign over all things, such that there is no aspect of reality outside of his ultimate control. Though God's rule extends to all things, it is particularly his sovereignty over the work of salvation that is a theological distinctive. And remember, we say it that way because there are genuine believers who will disagree with our position on this. We believe with great conviction that what we're saying here is the most faithful to Scripture. But this is not an issue um, over which I'm going to question someone's salvation. Um, I think there's big implications for how you come down on this. And this is why we stick to what we do here. But it's not essential to being a believer. Um, But this is what we emphasize. God's sovereignty over the work of salvation. We believe that it is exceedingly good and glorious news that salvation is not dependent on the desires and the deeds of man, but is grounded instead in God's eternal decree of election. Though man is responsible for his sin, God is ultimately and entirely responsible for drawing those he would save unto himself and overcoming their natural resistance to the gospel. Now, there's more to say on that, but what what this means in essence is, at the end of the day, we are not the final say in our salvation God is. We do have to respond. We do have to believe. There is an element of mystery as to how all these things work. But Scripture is clear that the final verdict lies with God. Um, He does not save us on the basis of anything we do, any response we give, and nothing compels Him to show us grace, compels Him to show us favor. Not even God foreseeing our faith down the way. He knows we're going to believe because He's chosen His own. That's the doctrine of election, the doc- God's eternal decree of who He chose to be saved. Um, there's a whole big discussion that goes into that, um, and we will be happy if we have time at some point more in depth to uh, really unpack that. So if you want to have a long conversation over that, please let us know, and we'd be happy to. Jerry would, I would, Mark would, any of the elders. Um, there's other folks as well um, who would be happy to. Um, but we are convinced the Bible teaches unconditional election, meaning God chooses His people on the basis of His grace alone, which is undeserved, unearned favor. Um, and it says, 
though man is though man is responsible for his sin, God is ultimately and entirely responsible for drawing those he would save unto himself. I want to look at a passage that's actually not in here that I think captures this. That um, as John MacArthur, I heard say this one time, and I think I think it is spot on. Yes, I think Scripture leans a certain way pretty clearly. But oftentimes in the Bible, it deals with God's sovereignty and human responsibility, and the Bible's not interested in trying to even argue about them. It just presents them both and goes with it. Here in John chapter 6, um, let's look at verse 35 and start reading there. Give me a sec if you got it. John 6, look at verse 35. Um, yeah. Everybody's turning there. We good? Can I get a, a volunteer to read, um, let's see, verses 35 through 47. It's a little bit longer passage. I got it. Thank you, Zach. You said 35 through 47? Yes. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. All right, thank you. Again, man, we could spend a lot of time here. Uh, but verse 35, Jesus is talking about how he is, life is in him. Um, if you come to him, you will never hunger, you will never thirst. Um, and then you look at verse 37. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Um, and so there's a giving of the Father to the Son, and he says all that God the Father gives to the Son will come to the Son. So if you're not given, you won't come. I mean, I, ho I hope that's clear just based on the logic of the text. But this is where I said it's kind of interesting because um, the very next verse, what does he say? Or the next half of the verse, whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And so as far as our own conscious experience is goes we don't stay we don't try to make sense of the first part of that we make we live in the second it's not the question we ask and we encourage other people is has the we don't ask has the father given you to jesus the question we ask is do you want to come to jesus you see that's we trust god's going to work as we say you need to come to jesus and we trust that as we say that he's going to draw certain people and again verse 44 
No one can come to me unless, no one is able, literally, to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So this initial coming to Jesus is by the drawing of the Father. And the reason we know this is, a, this is all in God and not in ourselves, he says, I will raise him up on the last day. Meaning, if the Father draws you to Jesus, then you will experience final resurrection one day. When Jesus comes back, you'll be with him. So there's, there's nothing in there breaking that. Those whom the Father has chosen, he draws. Now, but let's read on because this is huge. We kind of already said this. It says, We deny any view of God's sovereignty that in any way negates human responsibility for sin. We also deny any view of God's sovereignty that discourages two main things, passionate prayer or evangelism. We believe that God's total control over all things should encourage a passionate pursuit of Christ, holiness, prayer, and evangelism. Um, if our understanding of God's sovereignty in any way lessens our urgency to reach people with the gospel, to pray and seek God's face, then we haven't understood it rightly. Um, and again, there's that is it's it's a it's a deep issue. There's a lot more we could say. Um, quickly, are there any questions, comments on that? Just in case. Okay, all right, we're going to move on then. Fire hose, you're still surviving. This is good. We're at 2.32, so we got about uh, 13, 14 minutes. We doing all right, Jerry? You're doing great. Okay, all right. Um, everybody okay? Do we need a, need a mental break? No, okay. Um, if you've already been coming to North Avenue, you know you get a lot anyway, so this isn't too much of a surprise. Um, all right, the next one, the complementary role of men and women. And wow, is this a, it's so, I think it's so clear biblically, but man, is it controversial in our society today. Like something that is as basic to how nature itself is set up is no longer a certain among people. It is just not a given. Um, society is losing its mind over this issue. Um, and it's really sad. Um, but let's read what we say here. Um, men and women are absolutely equal in essence, dignity, and value, but are different by divine design. Um, as part of God's good created order, men and women are to have different yet complementary roles and responsibilities in the home and the church, especially as it comes to teaching and authority. These role distinctions are God's grace to man and woman and are to be protected, preserved, and practiced for His glory and our joy. Um, the whole complementarianism, maybe you've heard that word or not, simply uh, boiled down teaches that God made men and women different, yet complementary to one another. God, um, in terms of just our, our roles in and of themselves, there are certain things that God has gifted men to do and be. There are certain things God has gifted women to do and be. Um, and they complement each other. Where men are weak, women are strong. Where women are weak, men are strong. They complement. That's complementarianism at its root. Um, and it also clearly affirms that in the home and in the church especially, um, and you can bring this out beyond, uh, that men are to be the authority. And that's just rooted in the way God designed it. Like, that's not us trying to impose, a, you know, our own made-up patriarchy um, and to put women down. It's simply an attempt to be faithful to what Scripture itself says. We can go back to the very beginning. The text you probably know well, Genesis uh, chapter 2. Again, this is, I'm going some of this outside of what's in our, our statement of faith here. 
Um, Genesis 2. Let's look at verse 18. And then... Can we get um, quickly somebody to read verses 18 through 25? Volunteer. Go for it, Leonard. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground... Lord God had formed every best of the field, every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them and whatever the man called every living creature that was its name the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. What did say? You said 20? Uh, up through 25. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man had made into a woman and brought her to the man then the man said this at last is the bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh and then, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Thank you. Again, just a couple of comments. Um, when God says make a helper fit for him, it means corresponding to um, someone who literally would be a good fit for Adam, um, a, a helper. And um, so God creates woman from the man, brings the woman to the man. There's great joy there. But even in the nature of how God made it, you see that God made woman to be a, a complement to man. Again, not in any way lessening the value of women, because if you were to look at chapter 1, it's clear in verse 27, male and female are both fully in God's image. It's simply different roles, different purposes by God's own design. Um, any questions on that? Like I said, the whole, whole thing in Sunday school, the other place, is dealing with this a lot more right now. Um, okay, well, let's move on. Another major distinctive that we have is believer's baptism by immersion. That's kind of a redundancy there, but that's a good thing because the word baptism literally means immersion. So if we're to be literal, we're saying believers immersion by immersion. Um, but baptism's the word we're used to, and so that's why we say it that way um, because we don't say immersion, we say baptism. And, so, and also this matters because as a Baptist church, um, as we'll see, uh, we are in distinction from a Presbyterian church which believes you can baptize infants. 
Um, and so we say believer's baptism by immersion, and we say not baptism by sprinkling or by pouring or by like dunking the head. It's a total immersion of the body. And so this is a statement says, Baptism is intended only for those who have professed faith in Jesus Christ and can give sufficient testimony to the basics of Christian beliefs. Um, so you have to be able to, a person has to profess faith that they are trusting in Jesus alone for salvation and eternal life, for forgiveness of sins. And secondly, they can give testimony to the basics of Christian beliefs. And simply, we get the basics of what Christianity is. If you can articulate that and there's evidence in your life that it's gripping you and changing you, then you are a candidate for baptism. Next, we also baptize by immersion because it is the original meaning of the word and best symbolizes the reality to which baptism points, our death and resurrection in Christ. Um, and so, baptism is a visible picture of a spiritual reality. When we trust Jesus, we are saying, I'm dying with Him and being raised with Him. All my life is now in Jesus. Um, and baptism pictures that perfectly. You're, in a sense, gone. You go under the waters of judgment. You come out to new life. But not judgment yourself, judgment that Christ received, and you come out to Him. Um, again, we're Baptist by conviction, even if it's not in the name. We don't shy away from that. Um, and lastly, because we're getting close here is 240 um the re the relationship of god's glory to man's joy mark has talked about this a number of times um preaching and um hopefully at another point it'll come out but we believe that man's greatest joy is found only in faithful obedience to god and that our enjoyment of him is one of the chief means by which he is glorified in us if you've ever heard John Piper, he would say it is the chief means by which God is glorified in us. His statement, um, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. But you can go back to the old Westminster Confession of Faith. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And so we emphasize that a major, vital, necessary component of the Christian life is joy in God. Um, yes, we have duty. Yes, we must obey. But duty and obedience without joy actually dishonors God. Um, God is not honored where we just go through the motions for Him. It should be the overflow of our joy in Him, such that we are so captivated by Christ, so captivated by the grace of God, so captivated by God's love that we can't help but live for Him. Um, and worship Him and all of that. So that's why we say God's glory, man's joy. God will be more glorified um, in us when we joyfully follow Him and worship Him than if we just followed Him and worshiped Him but did so in a, a grumbling kind of way. That doesn't draw attention to the worth and the value of God. Um, and so if you listen carefully, you will hear um, this emphasis. The other one I'm going to mention that's not on here... Um, is simply we are an elder-led congregational church. Um, that's one of our, our emphasis. Other churches have leadership set up a little differently. Um, we believe most faithfully to Scripture that a church is to be led by a plurality of God-called men in the position of elder. It's the same same thing for pastor or bishop, whatever. It's all referring to the same office. Um, 
And, you know, there is a group of men God calls to lead the church, the elders, but they don't do so in isolation from the church. I mean, they're the leaders, the church follows, uh, but the elders are doing everything to lead according to Scripture and nothing else. And so, as Mark so well said it, the congregational aspect serves as kind of a, a stopgap measure that if for some crazy reason the elders really started going off course, the congregation can say, wait a minute, wait a minute, stop. Um, um, you know, but unless that's happening, Scripture seems pretty clear to say, you know, the elders, um, you know, should lead the congregation, should generally follow uh, without a lot of, you know, back and forth on that. Um, so again, six things. I know there's five on here. Any questions? We still have a few minutes. Any comments, questions over anything that we've talked about today? Because again, I know that's a lot to take in in a short amount of time. I'm guessing most of you probably already know this about us, and this is nothing new. Jerry, do you have anything to say? That's so good. Well, thank you. Congregational-led, yeah, elder-led congregational what? Did you say what was the other word to use for congregational? It was elder-led congregational. Rule, I don't know. I I don't remember what I said. Yeah. (laughs) It's an elder-led congregational church. Yeah, good. It was good stuff. I did, Rebecca, I failed to let you, could you... Because I had forgot that you weren't here last week. Could you oh. also share just in on that so that everybody knows you? Yeah, um, hi, I'm Rebecca. I've been going uh, to Mark's app for about like a year and a half now. Um, if you know Hannah Hughes, she invited me. Um, yeah, Which I, all we say is, of course she did because she invited almost all of us. <laughs> but yeah, I just neglected to go to the new, new members meeting the past year, so now I'm here. <laughs> Good. Can I pray for us? Yeah, man, go for it. Father, we are so grateful. Um, the, these, uh, once again, just inspired great joy. Um, as Greg so well put, you are most uh, glorified by us when we're most satisfied in you. And we would confess uh, before you today that there is nothing else, no one else, uh, that satisfies us uh, like you do. Um, we put our hope in you. We thank you that our joy comes from you. We thank you for your word that uh, you have given us um, and that we have all we need for life and godliness through your word, which just floods our hearts with the love and joy and peace of Christ uh, that you give us through your Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray that you would lead uh, each of these um, folks who have come uh, to uh, consider North Avenue or that you would give them uh, wisdom and discernment whether this is uh, the, the church that they should join or we pray that uh, in the end any members we would serve well and um, would serve the church well and would and Lord that we would um, that you would use Mark now and uh, the confession on the, uh, the time of worship to bring you great glory but I thank you for uh, just this group and uh, and their willingness to um, consider and, and we pray that even because of these uh, 45 minutes um, each of us would be sanctified and uh, and flooded with joy to live this life in a manner worthy of the gospel and we do thank you for your sovereignty what a great joy there is that uh, that you're in control and will today and every day work all things together for good because we love you and because you've called us uh, according to your purpose in Jesus name Amen. Mm-hmm.